Hey, the craziest thing happened on Sunday. Do you want to know what happened? My wife and I were just sitting there at home, and everything was cool. Baby was probably fine, and I don't remember. It all is a blur to me. But we were sitting there, and we were watching TV or something was going on, and I put something down in my car downstairs, and I came back upstairs, and I couldn't find something. Could not find our TV remote. This is a weird thing because the TV remote is gone. Like it's gone. We literally were using it. We've never lost our TV remote ever. And then all of a sudden, like in an instant, in a moment, it's been gone. And I have not found it for three days. We tore the place apart. We cannot find our TV remote. I have no idea. Like we were using it. And like, it's like my memory was erased. Like I have no idea where I put it. We've checked everywhere. We checked out all the rooms of the house. It's just kind of a weird thing to do to like check your bathroom for a TV remote. But it's not, it's not between the couches. That was the first place we looked. Literally, it was like it grew legs and walked away. I literally don't know what it is. Maybe I'll tell you in announcements next week like if I found it. But I might just have to order a new one because I, I literally cannot find it. I have no idea. It is the weirdest thing. And um, I, gu- I guess part of the problem is it's a small remote. It's an Apple TV remote. I don't know if you ever... You're like, oh, not a big brick, you know. No, it's an Apple TV remote. I, I, I don't even know where I'm supposed to look now. It's, I don't think the baby ate it. It's a good question. It's, I, again, guys, like, everything that you have said, I have looked. I even looked in the car. I can't find it. I don't think it's on my roof. It's not on my roof anymore. That's a good point. Uh, I, I didn't go to the store. We didn't even leave the house. I just went downstairs in my car, and I came back, and I couldn't find it. And um, I really, I don't think it's in the car. That's my whole point. I, I, here's, here's my point. I can't find it. I looked everywhere, Matea. It was, I couldn't find it. I just don't know where it is. And that's my point. Um, we might have to buy a new one because I, we, we can't do much with the TV without a remote. We can kind of use it on our phones, but it's not as convenient. It's a little bit hard. Um, but it's one of those type of things that is easy to lose. And... I actually thought before we got an Apple TV, like, we're going to lose this remote at some point, and it's officially gone, and we don't know where it is. Hopefully, we'll find it one day. But in my mind, it's gone because it's small, because it's easy to lose. Good thing my entire identity and happiness is not wrapped up in my Apple TV remote. I don't know if yours is, but uh, mine's not. So it's been fine not using it the last couple weeks. As silly as that is, I want you to think there are many things that are just as easy to lose as a little tiny Apple TV remote that many people in this room find all their happiness and all their identity in. If you find all your happiness, all your satisfaction, all your fun, all your identity in something that you can lose, the problem is at some point you will lose it. And the problem with that is usually when you lose it, if all your happiness is wrapped up in having that one little thing, then you're not going to be happy anymore. Things are going to be really bad. And for a lot of you, if it's with people or with school or with your sports, all those things can end. Everything that is here on this earth is going to go away at some point in time. Even you're going to go away at some point in time. And the reason I bring that up is because today, the psalm we're going to look at, David says, my happiness and my hope and my life and my identity is all in something that I cannot lose, something that will never go away. He says, all of my happiness is wrapped up in my relationship with the Lord. 
It's all wrapped up in God, and I can never lose the Lord. And what he says is, I always want to be kept safe in a good relationship with God. And I want us to look at this passage, Psalm chapter 16, right? comes right after what we looked at last week. Psalm 15 is what we talked about last week. Now we're looking at Psalm 16. Because the problem is, for a lot of us, if you really start to think about where your happiness is, what you love, what makes you happy, if I said, if there's one thing that you could not lose, what would it be? Would it be your family, your friends, your school, your sport? What is, I mean, maybe a talent that you have. If I could lose everything, I could lose everything, but keep that one thing, what would it be? With that one thing, if I was missing that one thing, then I could never be happy again if I'm missing that one thing. What's, what's the fill in the blank there? What's the answer there? For David, he says, the only safe place for you and for me is that all of our happiness is wrapped up in something we cannot lose. If it's wrapped up in God. I want us to check out Psalm 16. Look at verse 1. It says this. First thing David says is, preserve me, O God. We don't know if something was going wrong in David's life. Maybe it was, but maybe it wasn't. But he says, I want to be kept safe, O God. He says, for in you I take refuge. He says to God, you're my savior. You've saved me from every hard time. You're going to save me from everything in the future. I know that you are going to keep me safe. So God, please keep me safe. Verse 2, I say to the Lord. So this is now a prayer that David's praying. He says, you are my Lord, and I have no good apart from you. Imagine if I said that about the Apple TV remote. I have no good apart from you, Apple TV remote. What happens if I lose the Apple TV remote, right? Oh, no, that's correct. I'm not happy anymore. I can't be happy because all my happiness would be wrapped up in that thing. But I lost it, and I don't know where it is. So it's gone. And if all my happiness was in that, I guess I'd be a depressed person, okay? I could never be happy again. Here's the problem, though. David says, my happiness is not in something that I have. It's not in a person that I'm interacting with. It's not with my, my family. It's not with my mom or my dad or my best friends. He says, all my good is wrapped up in God, and that's it, in God alone. Every good thing he has is directly connected to God. Verse number three, he says, but there are people who I do love that live in the land with me. He says, as for the saints in the land, the people who are God's people, they are the excellent ones. He says, it's not the ones who have a lot of money. It's not the ones who are super famous. It's not the ones who are very talented that, that are the noble ones, the important ones. He says, it's God's people, the saints, the people in every age that are following God. He says, those are the people that I love. They're excellent, more excellent than their counterpart, even if they're not rich or famous or anything like that. He says, in whom is all my delight? Because I love being with other Christians. I love being with other saints. That's where I want to be. It says in verse 4, I don't want to be with some people. He says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Imagine that. Take sorrow upon sorrow upon sorrow. He says, everybody who runs after another God, people who want to follow false gods, people who want to follow the God of fame, people who want to follow the God of money, people who want to follow the God of pleasure, People who want to follow the God of everyone liking you. It says those people will have all their sadness will just get worse and worse and worse if they're wanting something and chasing after something that's not the Lord. It says their drink offerings of blood, I won't pour out or take their name on my lips. I, I'm not even going to talk about them. Like I don't even want any association. Right, this reminds us, if you're in Psalm 16, look back at Psalm 15, verse 4. Remember this? We talked about this last week. He says, a righteous person, one of the marks of this person is that they look up to those who fear the Lord, but they look down that they don't think highly of people who are evil. It says in verse four, in whose eyes a vile person is despised. 
That means that the righteous person doesn't say, I'm, oh, my, all my role models, those are all the evil people of the world. He says, no, my role models are the people who fear God. Back to chapter 16, look at verse 5. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Now, that sounds like, is he saying God is holding a parking space for him in the parking lot? Like, what does that mean that God holds his lot or is his chosen portion? Okay, David is using language that reminds us of the book we're reading right now in Exodus. In the book of Exodus, remember what happens? The people leave the land, and in the book of Exodus, it's promised, you're going to go to a promised land, you're leaving this land, you're going to a new land. In the book of Exodus, they get all these rules. Then in the book of Leviticus, there's more instructions on how they're supposed to live in the land. And then the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy and Joshua and Judges, they move into the land. Okay, they're moving from place to place. But God says, I'm going to give you something as a gift, as an inheritance. I'm going to give you a land. And every family got a piece of land that they were supposed to have charge of and they were supposed to give to their kids. He's using that language, but instead of saying, I have a great house, thank you, God, for a great house. Instead of saying, I have a lot of friends, God, thank you so much for those friends. Although that was true for David at times in his life. Here's what he says. He says, what is my inheritance? What's my lot? Look at it in verse five again. He says, the Lord is my chosen portion. If he thinks about anything that he has, it's like he says, the one thing that I have is God, and that's it. And if I have God, and he's my inheritance, it doesn't matter if I have a lot of stuff. It doesn't matter if I have a lot of friends. I am completely content with knowing God. Verse number six, he says, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. You imagine if you had a plot of land, you'd have to draw a line of what land is yours and what land is your neighbor's. And what he's saying is, like, the lines that I have around my property, they're good. But what's the property? He says the property is not a piece of land. He says it's God. It's a figurative way of saying, you know what? It's better for me to know God and be close to God. That is so much better than having a lot of land, having a lot of stuff, having a lot of popularity. I am completely content in knowing God. He says, indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse 7, he says, I'll bless the Lord who gives me counsel. So he says, I'm going to worship God because you know what God does for me? He teaches me. I open his word and he tells me what's right and wrong. Next week, we're going to look at Psalm 19 where it says that God's word is perfect. It helps us. It teaches us. It even revives our souls when we're feeling downcast, when we're feeling sad. It's like the Bible lifts us up. It says here, God instructs me. It says, in the night also, my heart instructs me. Or another way of saying instructs me is corrects me. It's like, He's guided by the Lord, and when he thinks about God's word, his feelings, his thoughts, his behaviors, at night, it says, when he stops and thinks about his day, it's like, I'm corrected by God's word. I think about God's word and say, oh, man, I shouldn't have talked that way. Oh, man, I shouldn't have thought that. Oh, man, I, was, I, I shouldn't have said that or done that. At the night, like, his heart is corrected by God's word. And it says in verse 8, which I think is the main point of this whole text, the main thing I want us to take away. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. He's at my right hand and I shall not be shaken. It's like the idea of, you know, when people are on their phones, right, and always walking around and they're on their phones and they're, they're going every which way and it's like, okay, they're on their phone. Remember Pokemon Go? Remember that? Where it's like, you know, their phone is in front of them all the time, right? They're everything. It's like their phone's always in front of them. Why? Because their phone is guiding them. It's telling them where to go, right? They're never gonna, like, leave the phone behind and follow some other path. No, the phone is like the thing that's guiding them. And that's what he's saying. The Lord, that's the one I'm following. I'm following God. God is going to be in front of me every day, which doesn't mean that he moves God in a different position. 
<laughs> it means he follows God. That's the idea. I'm going to set the Lord always before me. I'm going to do whatever he wants me to do. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices, and my flesh also dwells secure. Something funny there. It's like his heart, and then his body. And then he says, my whole being. So it's like, my heart, it's secure, because I know God. Right? I'm not gonna, I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to be depressed. I don't have to go to deep sadness or, or bitterness or anger. I don't have to go there because God is good. I don't have to go there. My heart doesn't have to go there. But also, my whole being, like everything about me, rejoices, even if times are hard. And then he says, my body, my flesh, that also dwells secure. How could his body dwell secure? I mean, think about it. Remember David? What was he always doing? He was running around trying to not get killed. Remember that? How can your body be secure if everyone's trying to shoot arrows at you and, you know, cut you down with a sword? How can your body be secure? Look at verse 10. He says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or the, the pit, death, or let your Holy One see corruption. He says, I'm so close to God that I know that even if I die, God will protect me even in that. Even if someone were to take my life, I know that God would keep me close to him. The New Testament authors pick this up and say, this is about David for sure. David writes about himself, but David writes even more than about himself. This is like what Jesus does. Jesus, his body, although it goes in the ground, it's not corrupted. It doesn't sit in the ground and waste away for, for years and years and years. No, he rises again. They say, this is about Jesus too. This isn't just about David. And he says, verse 11, you make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Like God tells David what the right path is. He tells us as Christians, what is the right path for us? The Bible will tell us that. And further, it says, with God's presence, when we get to be with God one day, face to face, there will be fullness of joy. We have little joys now. We have little things that excite us. We get excited when a package comes in the mail. We get excited when the Amazon package shows up, don't you? Right? It's fun. Right? You get even more excited when you enjoy a good relationship, when you have a good friend, right? when your things are going well at home. It's even more satisfying. You'll do well in sports and things will be fun. You'll, you'll, you'll create a good art project and you'll be like, yes, this is so good. I love this. You'll, you'll get little joys and they're, they're fine. They're great. They're little joys, but that's all they are. They're just little joys. They're not fullness of joy. None of them are. And also they are not like this. It says at your right hand, God, our pleasures forevermore. Every good thing that you could experience in this life will be short. It will be short-lived, even if it's the best thing. I mean, imagine what's the greatest thing that you think could ever happen to you? A lot of people say, winning the lottery, right? That's the greatest thing that could ever happen to me. Other people say, you know, I mean, I don't really want to win the lottery. You know, I just want to, like, find someone. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to have a family, right? Okay, that won't make you happy either. That's a good thing. It's happy, but it won't make you happy, right? Winning the lottery might make you happy for a little bit, but it won't make you happy. None of those things will. None of them. And that's going back to the Apple TV remote. The problem is if you start to think what you find your happiness in, I bet most of the things that we find our happiness in are little tiny things that can get lost. So the question tonight is where is your joy? Where is it? Is it with God or is it in something else? That's the question we need to ask. And that's the question, that's our title tonight, where is my joy? That's the question that we're asking God. And we want to have that answered. And hopefully the answer is that my joy is in the Lord. For us, verse eight is kind of the key thing that Christians need to do. The idea of setting the Lord always before me. That means focusing on God every day because he's your only solid source of salvation in verse one. He's the only source of happiness in verse two. He's the only source of guidance in verse seven. 
He's the only source of hope for eternal life in verse 9 through 11. So all of these things point us back to we need to focus on God and he needs to be our joy, nothing else. First thing that I think we see the opposite of this is in verse 4. So I want to take verse 4 out and just look at that one real quick before we do anything else. Point number one is all about verse 4 where it says that the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. David says, I'm happy because I'm with God. But the people who make their God something else, their sadness is just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse the farther they go down that path of sin. So point number one, the thing I want you to realize first is I want you to realize that all your idols will break your heart. Realize all your idols will break your heart. What's an idol? Well, an idol is something you put before God, something you love more than God. You could even take a good gift of God like your friends, like school, like sports. You could even take a good thing from God and put that in front of God, and now that's your new God, and that's your idol. David talks like he's loyal to God alone. It's like I'm only loyal to God more than anybody else, more than anything else. Reminds us of that first commandment. Remember the first commandment of the Ten Commandments? Exodus 20, verse 2 and 3. God says, I am the Lord your God. I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So God says, I saved you. I am your only God. Now you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods before me. What does that look like? That means that you're not bowing down to any idols. And you said, well, I didn't bow down to any idols this week, right? Well, I bet you, I bet you did in ways that you didn't think of. You might have bowed down, so to speak, or worshiped your social media instead of going to God's word. You might have bowed down to your friends and family and said, I'll do whatever they want to do, even though God's word says that's wrong. I'll do what my friends want me to do. That's like bowing down to an idol, putting something else in God's place, saying, I'm going to serve that, not God. Many people put themselves in place of God. That's the most common one. What that looks like is people saying, oh, I, I just need to love myself. I just need to take care of myself I don't care what anybody else does. I just need to love myself, love myself, love myself. Like, okay, then you're your own God. You have become your own God. You're chasing after an idol. What does t- verse four say? The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. I want you to think about what that means. Multiplying. Two, four, eight, 16, 32. What's the next number? 64. What's the next number? 128. What's the next number? 256. And that's all I got. Um, I don't know what's after that. But that's multiplying, right? We just went from two, four, six, eight. I, we didn't do eight. Or we didn't do six. Sorry. That was a weird math. You know, you know like a, is that called a function? Yeah, it's a, a function, right? You guys are like, oh, I'm going to find that out in algebra two. Like, I don't know. Um, whatever. Point is, that's what it means to multiply, right? It's like there's a big succession of it gets worse and worse and worse, right? Or bigger and bigger and bigger. This, the idea here is like, okay, you're with God. Guess what's going to happen? Joy is going to multiply bigger, bigger, bigger with God. What about your sorrows, your sadness if you worship another God? Those will also multiply. A lot of people have noticed that this concept doesn't actually start here. It comes from the third chapter of the Bible. Comes when Eve, remember Adam and Eve, what did Eve do? Eve sinned, right? She didn't obey God. She obeyed her own desire, right? Satan tempted her and she said, I want to do whatever I want to do. She did that. What happens next? God says that your sorrows shall be multiplied. The the curse, what happened later, like even the language that God uses, he says, your sorrows shall be multiplied, and then he says, in in having children. It's going to be worse. That's the idea. It's the same phrase here. 
hey, the sorrows of those who choose to disobey God, you might think you'll find happiness in disobeying God, but the reality is it will just be horrible. It'll kill you in the end. I read a story this week about a lady who murdered her husband. Um, I did. Her name was Lana Sue Clayton. This was in North Carolina, so this is kind of, I don't know, not California people. Do you know how um, she murdered her husband? Not with an axe. Not with a kitchen knife. She, uh, she gave him uh, too many eye drops. Yeah. Give him too many eye drops. But you might say, well, that's accidentally killing. That's not murdering, right? Well, she was upset with her husband for something. She claims that she didn't want to kill him, but she wanted to make him uncomfortable for him to have a bad day. So she took the eye drops and squirted it in his water in the morning. And not like that much, but what it does, like the, it was an anti like redness of your eyes. So it's a little eye drops you put in your eyes. What it does, this is kind of weird, because your eyes are red, how are they red? Well, they're red because your, your veins are kind of sticking out. So basically it constricts your veins, right? So in your eyeball, but you only take a little drop at a time or two drops and it, it will kind of make your eyes not be red anymore because the, the, the vessels or the, you know, the little vessels will just kind of constrict and it won't be red anymore, right? Oh, great. Your eyes aren't red. It doesn't fix any problems, right? So this lady thought, oh, it's a good idea. I want my husband to have a bad day. Um, so she takes it, squirts it in his drink and he dies because it messes up his whole circulatory system because it's like you're not supposed to take that much especially not supposed to take it in your mouth, right? Probably means it's not very safe for your eyes either, now that I heard about that. Um, so maybe don't use no red eye drops, because um, that might, might kill you. But it was interesting, because I could imagine using those eye drops and thinking, oh, my eyes are red. Let me just take a little bit more. Oh, just let me just take a little bit more. Oh, my eyes aren't getting, oh, just a little bit more, right? And then I die, <laughs> right? more of it, and then you, you die on the way to work or school, right? That's what happened to this guy. So she claims she didn't mean to kill him, but we're not too sure about that, are we? Uh, we're not too sure. I think she might have meant to kill him. Just interesting, though, that you might take that and think, well, this is going to make me better, right? I just need more. I just need more eye drops, more eye drops, because my eyes hurt, my eyes hurt, my, my eyes are dead, right? It's one of those things that's like a lot of sin. We think that, oh, if I just have more of it, it'll make me happy. It'll, I'll get better, right? Oh, just give me a little bit more of it. Just a little another taste. Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Right? A little bit more disrespecting my parents. A little bit more bad music. A little bit of more bad friends. It won't hurt me. You know, I might even, you know, get stronger if I get a little bit more. A little bit more. Dead, right? That's the, that's the prescription in the Bible. James 1 says that sin starts out small, but when we're tempted and we give in to temptation, it brings forth sin Temptation brings forth sin. Sin brings forth death. Right? We often don't think the connection is that strong, but the Bible says it is. Whatever idols you have, whether they're good things or bad things, and I think that's the problem. We look at this and say, oh, well, of course, I don't want sin to be the thing I serve. But what about good things? Well, good things might be good, but they're going to get lost, like the Apple TV remote. God spoke to the Israelites in Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 12. And he said this. This is what God says to the Israelites. He says, be appalled, O heavens. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. So the people of Israel did two things wrong. It's a two-in-one deal. What do they do? First of all, they have forsaken me. 
They've left me, he says, I am the fountain of living waters. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewed out for themselves. They dug in the ground for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that could hold no water. There was this thing that they basically do, they dig in the ground, they put a jar in the ground, and it was a way to keep water cool underneath the earth. So they'd put it in there and say, we'll save that later. And God says, you have left me. I'm the fountain of living water. I've given you everything that you have. And if you choose to leave me and not serve me, what you don't realize you're doing is you're leaving a fountain, a bubbling fountain of life-giving water. And then you're going to a broken cistern where you're gonna try to collect little scraps of water. You're gonna pour it in there and it's all gonna go away because it's flowing leading. You might say, I'd never do that. Right? Reality is, so many people do. I actually think the majority of kids that sit in the chairs that you are sitting in right now, they, that's what they do. They choose to say, I would rather try what the world has to offer and reject God in the process. Or some of them say, I want both. I want to try the world, and I want God too. And they try both, but the reality is the longer you live a lie, the more you're going to get exposed. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. For you, it might be popularity, fame, being well-liked, being rich, playing sports. Maybe for some of you, the way that you might be tempted to do this is you think, well, when I get to high school, when I get to college, and I get to live on my own, I can go try everything that's in the world. I'm waiting on that. That's why I don't want to become a Christian because I maybe want to try stuff later and I know if I become a Christian then I can't go off and live that bad life when I'm in high school and college. Some of you think that. That's your rationale. Well, take it from the guy who had everything. I want you to listen to something. There's a guy who had everything. He had the most money of anyone in his nation. He had the most popularity. He had all the girls. He had all the money. He built amazing buildings and palaces. This is Solomon I'm talking about. Passage I want you to write down is Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verses 9 to 11. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 9 to 11. This guy had everything. And here's what he tells you. 12-year-old, 13-year-old, 14-year-old. Here's what he tells you. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, verse 19. Or uh, chapter 2, verse 9, sorry. Ecclesiastes 2, 9. Solomon said, So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. He was also the smartest person in the room. He was the most handsome person in the room. He was the most talented person in the room. He was the richest person in the room. He had all that. He says, whatever my eye desired, everything that I wanted, every last thing that I wanted, I went and got. He says, I didn't keep anything for myself. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. He says, I wanted to do a ton of stuff, I wanted to live this life. I want to be an entrepreneur. I want to have a bunch of wives. And that's what Solomon did. He went off and said, I don't just want to marry one person. I want to have tons of women. I want to have tons of pleasure. I want to do all that stuff. He says, that's what he wanted to do. And he did it. And here's what he says. Here's my reward for all of it. You ready to hear it? He says, I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was worthless. It was worthless. Vanity is the word. And it was a striving after wind. It was like you trying to catch wind in a, in a red solo cup. Like, it was all for nothing. It says, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. I didn't get anything out of it. I thought I could when I was a young kid. I thought that, yeah, I would love to go try the world. But he says, when I tried the world and tried everything, and Solomon says to you, he says, there's nothing that you want to try that I didn't try. Right? That's the difference. I can't say that about you. 
Like, I, I, I'm, I, I didn't for, for myself. So I can't tell you from experience, okay? I can't tell you that I went out and tried everything and, you know, lived the party life. I can't tell you. Solomon can, though. And here's what he says to you. It wasn't worth it at all. At all. It was just the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. That's it. Romans chapter 1 says that for some people, it's even worse than that. Some people, it's not just you want to pursue stuff. It's not just you want to have idols of sports and family and friends. For some people, they make that their idol, and that's bad enough. He says it's even worse if you make sinful things your idol. Right? Imagine, instead of having your family be your idol, or your friends be your idol, or, or popularity be your idol, imagine if it was just like flat out sinful stuff you want to make your idol. And for some of you, that's true. Romans 1 says that people push down the truth. They suppress the truth in their heart because of their unrighteous behavior. Like they want to do sin, so they say, I know God says I can't do this and I shouldn't do this, so I'm just going to press that down and act like it's not true. That's what happens when many of you leave the narrow or you walk out of main service after Pastor Mike preaches a message, and here's what you do. Your heart is convicted, but you just push it down. Say, I'm not going to deal with that tonight. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to think about it. It says people suppress the truth in unrighteousness because they want to go sin. Some of you might not think about it that way, but why do you press down the truth? Why do you say, like, you know the truth, you know you should respond to God, but you don't do it. Paul says it's because you want to go off and do certain sins. They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It says, although they knew who God was, might be people like us, grew up in church, you know who God is. It says, these people did not honor him. They didn't give thanks to him. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened, and they gave up the glory of God, and they worshiped things re resembling man and beasts and animals. So what happens when you say, I don't want to serve God. You start worshiping other things. Romans 2, verse 4 says, that sometimes those of us who grow up in church who learn a lot about God, we presume on God's kindness. We see, well, God's been so kind to me. I mean, surely I'm fine with God. And Paul says, that's no, you're not getting it says, do you presume on the riches of the kindness and forbearance and patience of God? Okay. Do you think, well, because God hasn't struck me dead, well, then that must mean I'm a Christian. Right? He says, no, that's not how it works. He says, do you not know that all of those things were meant to lead you to repentance? You're supposed to turn from your sins. You're supposed to see, God has been so good to me, I need to turn from all my sin and follow him. That's it. Not running away from him, but turning to him. Verse number five in that passage, the next verse, Paul says, but because of your hard and impenitent hearts, impenitent means they won't bow. It's like your heart will not bow to God. He says, because of that, you are storing up for yourself wrath on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. It's like you don't even understand. Like the bad stuff you're doing, it's all written down. It's all gonna be compiled and God's gonna bring it all to you on the last day and say, you didn't respond to me. You didn't turn from your sin. Look at all your sin. Was it really worth it? And the answer, of course, is no. God says on the day of wrath, he's gonna mete out that wrath perfectly on every person who chose to do what was sinful and refused to submit to Jesus as their Lord. Question for you is, are you serving idols? Are you suppressing the truth? Are you not becoming a Christian because you are planning to do some kind of sin in the future because you think that's going to work out for you, right? David says, no, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. It'll just get worse and worse. Do you realize that God's gifts in your life, the, the, the good Christian family he gave you or the parents who love you, it's like you don't realize that maybe God gave that to you 
those good gifts, they're meant to lead you to turn from your sin, not to keep walking in your sin? Or are you like the person in Romans 2.5 who's like every day storing up judgment, more judgment, more judgment, more judgment? Only Jesus can take that judgment away. A judgment only goes away when you turn from your sin and you trust in Jesus and you ask him to take all your sin away and all your condemnation, all your guilt. And the moment you do that and say, I'm gonna follow you for the rest of my life and I'm gonna trust you, Jesus accomplishes that work of salvation in your life. He will take that burden away in a moment, in an instant. And David is a person who knows God and he knows what it's like to be close to God. And that's what he talks about. That's really what this Psalm is all about. The warning for us is, do we even think like this? That's point number one. But the thing that we're supposed to do as Christians, if you do know God, you have turned from your sin, then we're gonna start putting into practice the things that David says here. First of all, point number two, I'd love for you to write this down. I want you to enjoy true happiness in knowing God. That's what the majority of this Psalm is all about. He says, I am enjoying true happiness because I know God. I referenced this before, but the, the conversation about David says, my inheritance, my lot, in verse five and six especially, says, the Lord is my chosen portion and my lot, my cup. A cup represents blessing. In Psalm 23, he says, my, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me, will pursue me all the days of my life. God gives good gifts to his people. But also the, the idea of the chosen lot, that also comes from the Old Testament. I didn't tell you that before, but I want you to write this verse down, number four, number two. Numbers 18.20. Numbers 18.20, a, a random little passage there, but I think that's what David's quoting. Numbers 18.20, the Lord said to Aaron, remember Aaron is the brother of Moses. From Aaron's family came all those priests, the Levites, right? That was Aaron's family, the priests. Here's what God says to the priests. He says, you shall have no inheritance in their land. You're going to get not one square inch of land. That'll be called Levite territory. Neither shall you have any portion among them. What? Like those are the, the priests, God's people. How come they get no land? How come they get no portion? Aren't they like the ones that are going to serve God as their job? They're not going to be the farmers. They're not going to be the normal jobs. They're going to just serve God and they get nothing for it. That's what it seems like until God goes on. He says, I am your portion. He says, you don't get a land portion, but guess what you get, Levites? You're going to get a special relationship with me. And David asks you and me the question, what's better? Everything that you want in this life or knowing God, what's better? If you really start to answer that question, it will show what you think of God and what you think of stuff. It will show you that. He says, I'm your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. David's like, that's like my experience. David does have land. He, he's, a, he's a Judean. He's not from the tribe of Levi, but he's like, I'm, so, I'm close to God, and I know God cares for me, and he's my inheritance. He's my portion. Asaph says something similar in Psalm 73. We're going to get there later on in the year, but Psalm 73, he talks about God being his guide. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? Right? I, I don't have anything. I don't have any inheritance in heaven other than the Lord. And there's nothing on earth I desire besides you. Because my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength and, the heart, and my heart and, he says, my portion. Like, it's my inherent. It's like the gift that was given to me, it's God. And that's it, and that's enough. Enjoy true happiness in knowing God. If I said, what's gonna make you truly happy? I bet you could give me a big list of things. I want this, 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 and this. It might start out with stuff, 
right? I really like this thing. I really like this thing. I really like this device. But then it would probably go on to relationships. I really want to be friends with this person. I really want people to like me. I really want people to think I'm funny. I really want this, this, this. Then it might go on to things like, you know, in the future, like money. I really want to be successful. I really want people to look up to me. I really want to be respected. And then it might be for some of you, I really want a family. I really want a husband. I really want a wife. I really want kids. I really want this. I really want that. Then you're going to really want grandkids. And then you're going to want and want and want. And it's like, well, here's the thing. David says, I have God and that's enough. I have God and that's enough, which means wherever I am, whatever I have, I know that God gave that to me. Whatever situation I'm in, I know that God put me there. And like Paul says in Philippians 4, I can be content in all things. I know how to have a lot and be thankful. I know how to, how to have a little and be content. I know how to be both because Paul loves God more than anything. Right? You can have that same perspective if you love God more than anything. It's not out of reach. David says also, true happiness involves even the people I know. It's not, that, it's not um, centered in people, but he says the saints, the people in the land, but God's people, they're my best friends. They're the ones I like hanging out with, not the evil people. Jesus says something to us similar in the New Testament. He says in John 13, he says, I know you can't serve me. You can't wash my feet. You can't come and give me a glass of cold water. This is in Matthew 25. He says, but when you serve other people in God's church, when you serve other Christians, it's like you're serving me. John 13, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Like the example you saw Jesus do with the disciples, that's what you and me are supposed to do with each other. It's like I'm supposed to sacrifice. I'm supposed to intentionally do those things. Think about it. First Peter 1 also talks about an inheritance that we get. He says that we have an inheritance that's kept with God right now that's undefiled, unfading. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1 Peter 1, 3. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. You hear that? God saved me. That's what he says to be born again, to a living hope, a hope that's alive. My hope is alive. My hope is not in something dead or something like a rock, right? My hope is alive. My hope is in a person, in Jesus. This is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable. It will never die. Undefiled. It will never be imperfect. It will be never be less than exactly right. It will be never less than eternal. It will be always existing and unfading. It will never get worse. Everything that you have, every phone that you get, every device that you get, it's all fading. It's like it's exciting, and then it's like not so exciting, and then you want to get rid of it. That's how you might feel with some friendships. It's like, oh, it was exciting. No, it's not so exciting. No, I kind of want to get rid of it, right? All these things that you think, oh, I'll be happy if I get that thing. It's like all of them are fading. They will be exciting for a little bit, and some of them won't even be exciting. Some of them like will be like, oh, that, that wasn't what I thought at all. But even if they are exciting, they'll fade. It won't be exciting. This says there's an inheritance that's kept in heaven for you, which is being guarded by God's power right now for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Interesting that in Psalm 16, verse 5, he says, the Lord is my portion. God is my gift. I don't need stuff. I don't need position. I don't need people to love me. I just need God. That's it. Then he says, one of the things that God does for him is he guides him. 
he helps him. He says, in the night, my heart instructs me because I'm thinking of God's word every day and every night. And then I think back on my day at nighttime and I think, wow, my heart really corrects me and thinks, oh, I shouldn't have said that, shouldn't have done that. My heart instructs me. That's verse seven and eight. Point number three, I want you to write this down. If you're focusing on God, I want you to depend on God and his word for guidance. Depend on God and his word for guidance. That's what you need. You need guidance. I need guidance. You're not born knowing everything. You're not born knowing everything that's right and wrong. You're not born knowing how we should act and what we should say. Like we, there's so much wisdom that we need, and God gives it. I noticed recently, I said to Alexander this, that I've adopted some of the catchphrases that my wife says. There are some things that she says that are really cute, but I thought I would never say those. One of them is a big old. Like, like oh, I got a, you know, that's a, that's a big old bottle of water you got. <laughs> I guess that's a pretty normal thing to say. But I got a big old this. I was texting her. Sometimes she texts me, yo, 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 yo. Believe it or not. She does. Sometimes she's like, oh, she points at me funny. Um, and if you haven't figured this out, she's the fun one and I'm the serious one in the relationship. Right? The other day, I texted her, I was like, yo, 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 yo. Like, what am I doing? I'm so weird. Um, I never thought I'd do this. I was like, oh, we got a big old bottle of water. I'm like, oh. My wife is changing me. I'm starting to say the stuff that she says. I caught myself doing that. That's good. I should probably be more like Alexander in a lot of ways. So that's good. But the truth is, you and I are all, we're all shaped by people. You have some of the phrases that your parents say. Right? You make some of the same facial expressions. You do some of the th- same things that your friends do. Right? You're shaped by your associations. And, and what David says is, I'm shaped by God's word. I want to be guided, directed. I want my choices to be all shaped and molded to God's word. I don't want to just live however I'm going to live and then not be shaped by God. I want to be shaped by God and his word. Colossians 3 says that. I want you to write that passage down. Colossians 3, 16. He says here, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. It's like God's word should be in your heart and it should dwell richly in your heart, which means you probably can only deal with so much of that at a time, right? You can't so much let 20 chapters dwell in your heart richly all at once. We just need little chunks and bits at a time, which is why as we read the daily Bible reading, I'd really encourage you, and I say this sometimes in the DBR snapshots, but I really encourage you to take a couple verses and just think about them, meditate on them, Think about them over and over again. Just one verse or two verses over and over again. Just thinking about them, meditating on them. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Guess what happens when you are dwelling on God's word richly? What happens when I am dwelling on God's word richly? The next thing he says is, you'll start to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So, so if God's word's in you, now you're gonna be able to identify in situations, oh, God's word says this, what we should do. God's word said we shouldn't just do that, we should do this. It's teaching, admonishing one another. Then it says it makes us happy, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And also the last thing it does is it creates thankfulness in our hearts towards God. We're thankful that God has been good. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything for the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So it's like, okay, if this starts with us focusing on God's word, like David says here, God's word's my guide. What's going to happen? Well, we're going to start to 
act a certain way. We're going to start to teach and admonish one another. We're going to start to sing at random times, right? Even if you're not musical, right? You're also going to be thankful, right? How different would you be, let's imagine, in a really hard time or just in a normal time? Either way, if you were dwelling on Christ's word, then you were able to teach and admonish one another. Then you were singing joyful songs, and then you were thankful to God. You see how that just, that shapes everything about how you live. Depend on God's word. James 1 says that God's word is like a mirror. You know that passage, right? James 1, 22. It says that God's word is like a mirror. It shows you what's wrong. He says the problem for so many people is they look at God's word, but they don't dwell in God's word. And when they don't dwell in God's word, they think, oh, that was nice. What's my next thing to do today? Oh, read my daily Bible reading. I'm done. All right, what's my next thing to do? And then you forget about it. And I say, what did you read this morning? You're like, Something about priests, I think, maybe. Was it about priests, right? We're all guilty of that sometimes. James 1 says, if you look to the Bible and you see what's wrong with you, but you forget, it says it's like a person who looks at their face in the mirror and then goes away and forgets what they look like and think, did I have something between my teeth? I don't even remember. Can you imagine if you thought you had something in your teeth and you looked in the mirror and then you like immediately forgot? Some of you guys, like that happens to me all the time. So not, it sometimes happens to me, to be honest. Um, but it's like, no, if you, if you want to be more like Christ and be changed to be more like him, no, you need to think about it often. You need to be led by God's word. The last part of this chapter is the most interesting, I think. Psalm 16, verse 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9 says, Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let my your holy ones see corruption. You're never going to let your people be away from you. You're never even going to let our bodies be gone and destroyed forever. You're going to do something. You're going to remake our new bodies. You're going to do something with that. In God's right hand, there's fullness of joy. Pleasures forevermore. When you're dead, you're going to live forever. That's kind of what he's saying. I said that this is really about Jesus in many ways. Peter preached a sermon in Acts 2 and said this is all about Jesus. Paul preached in Acts 13, what we're about to go over in main service, and he quotes this passage. He says that was about Jesus, who was in the grave for a short amount of time, but God didn't abandon him. And his flesh, it wasn't corrupted. He was only in the ground for three days, and then he rose again. It's about Jesus. If you know what the New Testament says about Jesus, in his resurrection, he promises his people eternal life. When he rises again, that's promise that Christians, God's people, will also rise again to new life. How can you be happy no matter what? What if something terrible happens? What if someone close to you dies? What if you lose everything? What if your parents go through a hard time? What if your parents get divorced? How can you be, can you be happy? How does that work? Right? Well, if my hope's only in God. Right? What about it if you were to be at the point of death? How could you possibly have your happiness in God? If you were going to die. Imagine if you found out you were going to die. It doesn't happen very often, right? but it does. It happens sometimes leukemia, things like that, car accidents, right? People your age die every day. But imagine you knew you're, you're like on the face of death. How on earth could you have joy? Well, you'd have to confidently know that you will live after death. That's the only way that you could be satisfied and happy. That's it. Without a firm confidence in that, you would be shaking in your boots. As Hebrews 2 says, you'd be enslaved to the fear of death. Unless you knew confidently. 
for 100% fact that when you die, you're going to be with God. How could you possibly know that? It's only if you trust in Jesus. That's the only way that you can know that. If you're trusting in him, that's the only way that you could be secure. Point number four, I want you to write this down. I want you to boldly trust Jesus who conquered death. Boldly trust Jesus who conquered death. That's what this points forward to. Jesus conquering death. Acts 2, 22 is this passage I was referencing. Peter stood up and said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, is what he said, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed at the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is at my right hand and I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will also dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You may known to me the paths of life. You'll make me full of gladness in your presence. Then he says, brothers, I need to tell you something. I need to tell you, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he died and he was buried and his flesh was corrupted. His tomb is with us to this day. He says, we can go over to David's tomb, but he's still in the ground. He's still dead. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn an oath with him that he would send one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he would not be abandoned to Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That was Peter's sermon. He uses this passage to preach his first sermon. He says, Jesus rose again. And it was talked about in the Old Testament. We can know that we'll have eternal life. Not just hope, not just guess, because Jesus rose again. The fullness of joy is like the opposite of like a warhead. You know what warheads are? Those really, really sour candies. Warheads are terrible for a moment. They're terrible. Because if you've ever eaten a warhead, they like, capture your whole mouth. They're so sour. Raise your hand if you ever had a warhead. Okay, you guys know what I'm talking about. You know how, what the, I was like, do I have to explain what a warhead is to you? Or no, you know what it tastes like, right? It's like, oh, wow. But if you like stick it in the corner of your mouth, it will like eat out at your mouth. You know, you like get all cut in the corner of your mouth. That's how strong it is. But if you put it on your tongue and you just man up and you say, okay, mm, it gets better, right? It's short-lived. It's sour. Like, it really is sour. But, like, you will feel not so sour, like, in about 15 seconds. You it won't feel sour anymore. You'll take out all the sourness. Is it really sour? Yes, but it's short. That's the description of the joy that we have on this earth. Is it good? Yeah, we have some good joys, but they're short. They're not forever. The fullness of joy that he's talking about is forever, which is why you can have firm confidence that you'll live forever. Romans 8 says, Romans 8, 32 says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If Jesus died and rose again to secure eternal life from you, are you concerned that maybe it won't be a good time? 
Like, are you, con- he went through all that trouble. And you think that it won't be great? It says even here and now, he, he gave his son for us. Don't you think that God's going to supply people in your life that you can show love to? He's going to do that. Don't you think that he's going to give you what you need even here and now? He says, of course. He says, then he asked the question, Paul says in Romans 8, um, who's going to come up to you as a Christian and bring a charge against God's elect? He says, it's like God has saved his people. If someone comes up to you and says, no, 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 you shouldn't be a Christian because you did all these bad things. It's like, well, you're going to bring up that, that up to God. Well, God already paid for their sins. Who's going to bring up a charge against God's elect? You think you can ever walk away from this relationship with God? You don't understand how secure you are in God. It says, who's going to condemn God's people? It's Christ. He already died for them. Moreover, he was raised. He's at the right hand of God. And right now he's interceding. He's caring for his people. Verse number 35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Shall any of those things separate us from the love of Christ? His answer is absolutely not. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Jesus conquered death. He says, we're conquering death with him. It's important to feel secure. That might be one of the most important feelings, right? It's what everyone wants security. Last Friday, Alexandra got a flat tire. Has she told you about this story? She got a flat tire um, on her front left tire. And when we're talking about flat tires, there are such a thing as like a little flat tire, and then there is such a thing as like the tire is completely gone, flat tire. This thing was like the rim was like on the ground. The tire was totally smushed and gone. I'm like, what happened? And we saw, and there was a massive bolt sticking out of the side of it, and it had a washer on it. It looked like someone drilled it in there. Did one of you drill that in her car? Okay, good. No. So I left work Friday afternoon. I drive over. It was at the Cafe Rio parking lot. We look like weirdos, right, changing the tire. Right? So got the spare tire, got the jack, jacked the car up right? Trying not to make it fall on top of me. That would have been bad. Taking off the tire, using the little tool thing, putting the new tire on, a little donut. That's what they're called, donut tire. It's like a little tiny black tire, but it's smaller than the normal one. She drives a Jeep, so the normal one's got like this big, nice tire. This was like a bike tire. It was tiny. And I was concerned, like, what if I don't put it on tight enough? So I'm like, okay, you don't drive it. I'm going to drive it. So I drove it home. She drove my car. She put Eden in my car. I drove her car. It was the scariest 10 minutes. I'm not kidding you. The car would like pull to the left. And then something, it would like pull to the right. I'm like, that shouldn't even be happening. Like you'd think maybe pull one way and not the other way. This thing was sketchy. It was bad. I was scared. And then the next day I was like, oh, we went on a trip the next day. Got back on Monday. And um, I really wanted to play golf on Monday. So I took it to golf. Um, because I was like, I don't want you to drive it. So I took it on Monday, and I drove it around on Monday, and that was also sketchy. And I was driving on the freeway. Guys, it says you're not supposed to go above 55. I was going right at 55. I'm sitting there in the right lane, right? I know this doesn't mean much to you, but your parents would have honked at me. Maybe your parents did honk at me because I was going too slow on the freeway. But it was scary because every time I moved or turned, I felt like I am going to crash this car. What happens if I didn't put the tire on enough and, like, it just falls off? Like, that's a real thought. I was like, what if it just falls off? Maybe it's going to fall off. Like, this could be my last day. Like, I might die on this freeway today. I can't believe I'm doing this. I'll have to go play golf. Um, but it's okay. It survived. It was great. 
got new tires, four new tires because, um, yeah, because they were bald, balder than Eden. But it felt really good to put those new tires on. Like, it was like, okay, this is how this car is supposed to be. It was secure. You know, with God, it's sometimes we feel like we're driving a car around with a little donut on. feels insecure. feels scary. Scared I'm going to die, right? Um, but the reality is, if your trust is in God and your happiness is in God, it's not in stuff, it's not in your friends, it's not in your relationships. If it's in God, you are more secure than even the Jeep is with nice tires. You are completely secure. In life or in death, no matter what, you're safe with God. Only the people that trust in Jesus who conquer death, those are the people that are safe. So tonight in small groups, we've got four questions on it. What I want you to talk about is what are the things that you are tempted to put all your happiness in? What are your Apple TV remotes that can be lost that you put your happiness in? I want you to think about that, but let's pray before we get to small groups. I want to pray that we would start to think more long-term about these things. We wouldn't just think about what makes me happy here and now, but what is going to be the place where my, where's the place that my hope and my joy needs to be? It needs to be in God. Let's pray about that right now. God, please help us see this. Pray for those tonight who think that they will be happy by trying out the world and their sin. Pray for the people right now who continually choose to reject you and not become Christians because they, they want to commit sin in the future. I pray that they would be stopped in their tracks tonight. Pray that they would see the truth of your word, that their sorrows will only multiply if they walk down that wrong path. But the joys that are at your right hand are, are forevermore. They're permanent. They're not temporal like those warheads. They're, they're, they're eternal, permanent, ongoing. Please help us see that. I know it's hard for us to see. But pray that tonight, more of us would be more committed to following you and serving you no matter what. Please help us see that. Please change us to be more like you. In Jesus' name we pray.